and welcome to another edition of Turn Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and once again, I am bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, a major guest, a major guest, Billy Duffy of the band The Cult, of Death Cult, of, of The Nosebleeds, of more. But that will have to wait one second. First, if you want to get in touch with me, you can head over to an email address that is turnoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. You can send an email. You can also get in touch with the show via Facebook. There's a, a Facebook page run by my brother and show producer, Tristan Abraham, and he will get those messages to me. If you're looking for me, I'm on various forms of social media at Left for Damien. If you'd like to support the show, and who doesn't want to support the show? The best way to do that is by telling all your friends, rating it on the podcast platform of your choice, and just tell all your friends about it. Let everyone know that you listen to this thing. Speaking of support, this show would not be possible without the kind, loving support of the fine folks at Vans. Vans came on board a while ago and said, you know what, we want you to do this show, but we just don't want you to lose money doing it, and they have made this whole thing possible. Speaking of making this thing possible, more recently we launched a Patreon that's been I know a little slow to get going, but I swear to you, it is going to get going and is getting going now. And I can't stress enough how much I appreciate each and every one of you that has signed up for it so far. Uh, it means it means the world to me. And I assure you, your faith will be rewarded. I promise you on this thing. Uh, also, uh, I'd like to say thank you for the kind, loving support of everyone that's checked out The Wrestler so far. I've been overwhelmed by the response, hence why I've been unable to do this as consistently as I should be doing right now, but that's why I'm also trying to put two episodes up a week as a sort of a thank you for bearing with me on this thing. But yeah, the wrestlers has come out and, uh, the feedback's been incredible. Thank you. Thank you to everyone that's checked it out and enjoyed it and written to me and said so. And yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm overwhelmed, you know, like I've been talking about this thing for so long. So to see it come to fruition has been, yeah, it's been wild. It's been wild. So, uh, thank you everyone. Also, you can check out some articles I'm writing on vice.com about the wrestlers as well. And I'm doing tons of social media stuff. You know, you can see all that stuff. You can find it all. It's all out there if you want to see it. But uh, yeah, thank you, everyone. Thank you, all of you, on today's show. Today on the show, amazing, amazing guest, Billy Duffy. Tristan Abraham, my brother, said we should get Billy Duffy on the show after the Johnny Marr show. And Billy Duffy came up so much. And I'm like, well, good luck. Go try. And guess what? He did it. So Tristan, thank you so much for doing this. This is a really fun episode. Uh, I'm a huge cult fan. Like I love the cult. They're one of my favorite rock bands of all time. But there's just so many unanswered questions that uh, Billy answers for me today. Like, what did Morrissey's voice sound like when he tried to sound punk? That's a question I've always had. And now you will hear an answer on this episode. This is a good one. This is a such a good one. Billy was so cool. I'm not going to blather on anymore. I don't think there's any notes for me to get to. If there are and I've forgotten them, I'm sorry. Uh, and that's it. Um, all right. Sit back, relax, and enjoy Billy Duffy on Turned Out a Punk. Billy, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, you're welcome. Well, as I was just telling you off air, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of yours, and this is a, a, a big, huge honor to get you on here finally. Oh, hey, it's it's great. Like like to reminisce. I'm getting to that age where I don't mind a little bit of talking about the old days. Actually, it doesn't bother me as much as it used to. 
Well, you know, and I think that's the thing is like, you're someone that I think has so many legacies, right? Like you could talk about your importance to just rock music in general. You could talk about your importance to goth music uh, and you could talk about your importance to punk rock. So yeah, there's a lot of ways <laughs> we can go with this thing. Yeah, yeah, I guess. I mean, I don't, yeah, I suppose so. I don't know how many people remember. I just happened to be fortunate that I left high school right when the summer of punk happened in England, the so-called Jubilee year, 1977. It was more circumstantial, really, than anything for, for me that, that I sort of fell into that. I, I obviously was pretty passionate and obsessive about music in general, um, like most of the people who came out of that mid-70s English, terrible, depression, grey, you know. The, 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 the basic, to set the scene for the 70s, that Julian Temple movie he did on the Pistols not too long ago pretty much kind of sets the scene of what the UK was like in the 70s. Suffice it to say, I think a lot of people moved to Canada I know that for a fact. I know, I know, I know Ian. I know Ian Asprey's dad emigrated and took the family over to Hamilton, Ontario, and people were leaving England because there were the, there was no work. There were strikes. That the unions had got like crazy with their power, and it was horrible. So, you know, out comes punk rock. There you go. You know, <laughs> absolutely. Weird. The reaction, everything, and it's but it's also like it wasn't just so much even just you know, England, as you're saying, but the neighborhood you're from, like that neighborhood in Manchester, it's unbelievable <laughs> the amount of bands that would rock the world that came out of that, you know, very part, uh, part well, of Well, I mean, yeah, I think so. I mean, yes, I, I you know, that a couple of the guys who me and Johnny know from back in the day who never pursued a career in music were like, oh, yeah, you and Johnny, yeah, you did really well. You weren't even the best two guitarists in Withenshaw. <laughs> Which is very true. We probably had the best haircuts and the best tried to get the best looking girlfriends, but we probably weren't quite the best guitar players. Well, that is shocking. That must have been the greatest <laughs> shredder neighborhood of all time then. There wasn't much else. You know, there wasn't really much else. I mean, I'm sure everybody's heard it ad nauseum, but, you know, it, it, opportunities in terms of getting out of the, 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 the sort of, I know, I wouldn't say it was a ghetto. I mean, it was just a very working-class blue-collar neighbourhood with a bit of crime and the usual stuff you get in those areas. Um, but it was the, the only two options really were music and um, football, mm -hmm. you know, or soccer, as they say, uh, <laughs> everywhere in in the North America. Um, so, you know, those were the two options, and I wasn't really that good. Johnny was better than me at soccer, and, um, you know, uh, but, you know, I was, I was okay, you know, but I wasn't like, I wasn't going to end up playing for any professional team. That was a fact. So thank God for punk rock, man. Jeez. <laughs> well, I'm glad you found it too. Cause it, it worked out pretty good for me getting to listen to some music that you, you've written. Well, here, yeah, so. yeah, you, you're welcome. It was, uh, so yeah, it was, it was a funny thing. You know, what, what do you want to? Now, to bear in mind, I did. I just was a music obsessive, you know. I mean, it wasn't. It was pre-punk, yeah. Obviously, <laughs> there was, you know, it wasn't just. But punk resonated because, as a young man, I liked the energy of the guitar and the volume of the guitar, and so you know, even before I kind of got turned on to the music that was the gateway to punk, you know, Ergo, the New York Dolls, and Iggy and the Stooges. 
um, they were the gateway drugs um, to punk rock. There was, um, you know, I was into like Free and Bad Company and Thin Lizzy and um, anything really. We, we all just used to go to gigs in Manchester because that was the only fun thing to do. And we used to sneak in a lot of the time uh, without paying, which was quite challenging but uh, effective. <laughs> well, I guess I wanted to start this off the way I kind of start them all off, which is, Billy, how did you get into punk specifically? What was the first time you ever remember hearing that word or coming across the genre? In your definition, it was, I'm gonna at the risk of um, you know going down a very somewhat well trodden path. I heard about punk. I remember seeing an article in one of the English music magazines um, where there was an interview with the Sex Pistols, where I just remember pictures of them leaning against a shop window in London, which had little seven inch singles in it, and they were imports. Turned out it was Soho Market and they were imports of foreign singles and there was a Beatles one. And Johnny Lydon had just stuck chewing gum on the face of one of the Beatles in this particular photo, just larking about. And that sort of piqued my attention. You know, I was Beatles neutral. I wasn't a Beatles lover or hater, but I never... I was into kind of aggressive guitar-based music at that time. Um... So, you know, I, I wasn't, I just was, that piqued my interest. Cut to the Sex Pistols, you start reading about them in the music papers, which we all devoured, you know, every week in the morning when they were delivered on a Wednesday and a Thursday, and then we'd all go to our high schools and discuss what we'd read about what bands were coming up and, you know, all that. Um, and and they turned out that the Sex Pistols were playing in my hometown in 1976. Mm-hmm. And um, but the real reason, to be honest, if uh, the confessional is the real reason that pushed me to go to the gig, there was a local punk band who used to be a Bowie-ish band. They were called Slaughter and the Dogs. Absolutely. And uh, and they were from Widdenshaw, my neighbourhood, and they were they were like these people I'd seen, you know, heard of that actually had played gigs in Paris. And Amsterdam, and it was like, wow, I'd barely been outside Manchester. So, you know, they they ended up doing a gig in Manchester with the Sex Pistols, put on by the Buzzcocks, who who were, were the, the real kind of pioneers in Manchester of punk, Howard DeVoto and Pete Shelley. And, um, you know, everybody's heard about those two gigs. The, the first gig I didn't go to, uh, neither did anybody else hardly. I think 40 people went mm-hmm. and the Buzzcocks didn't play. And that was um, that was the one that was in 24-hour party people. Um, and, and I went to, yeah, they, they booked another gig a month later, put Slaughter and the Dogs on the bill and the Buzzcocks did play and I saw their first ever gig. And that, that was the two things that I remembered. A, how amazing the Buzzcocks were. You know, I just loved Spiral Scratch, you know, mm-hmm. Boredom and Breakdown. I mean, that that was like, from, I didn't even know what that was. I, I saw it and I went, fuck, this is great. And they had that, he had that sawn off guitar, Shelley, and it was great. Slot and the Dogs were what kind of we expected, you know, kind of Bowie music spell up and they were like our local, you know, band. And then, and then the Pistols came on. And and I remember there was a big fight in the crowd, as there always was in the punk rock gigs, because they were selling beer in glass bottles in pints, which obviously was a bit of a mistake. 
um, in terms of the potential for them turning into a weapon. Yeah. And uh, there was a big fight. And this is the funny story, right? Five of my mates went from my high school and three left because of the violence. They were actually scared that it was, it was really was kicking off like nasty style. And uh, me and one other guy stayed from my recollection and I saw the pistols and, it, and that was... Uh, mind-blowing as well so that was actually the day you know and i know a load of people claim to have been at those gigs and you know if everybody in manchester would have been at the gig that says they were we would have had to put it on at the uh the arena there you know what i mean <laughs> but uh, i do actually still have the tickets and the poster from the gig so oh that's um, awesome and some happy memories, you know, and like they say, all the heads were there, you know, loads of guys who went to form band, went on to form bands and that were there. And, you know, that that was the basically the environment. And there was, we were fortunate in Manchester that we were kind of a progressive city, even mm -hmm. though it was kind of not as glamorous as London. Everybody was kind of forward thinking and there were a lot of, I like to think intelligent, progressive people in Manchester, you know, at the time. And they kind of, led the way um, with punk, you know, very early on. Yeah, it, it's amazing when you think about that gig, how many bands came out of that room. Like, it's almost like you're saying, there's not a lot of people in there, but like almost every single person wound up playing in a band. At least that's how it's been kind of like taken up historically. It's kind of been portrayed, but there was definitely, you know, to be clear and for the record, I, there was two gigs and the first one, there were only like 30, 40 people at it. And the Buzzcocks did put the gig on. Mm -hmm. They went to London, saw the Sex Pistols, went, we've got to bring this to Manchester, brought them up, but them, themselves as a band weren't ready to play. That, and they were definitely, you know, I mean, at the time, you've got to remember, I was 15 years of age. I was still doing my um, my exams at high school. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I wasn't even out of school yet. So, you know, to go out to punk rock gigs late at night in Manchester, you know, was not... My parents were pretty easy going and, and I used to go out a lot. But, you know, it, it just to contextualise where I was at in my life, I was still a schoolboy when this was actually happening, you know. So a lot of the people who were at the first gig were just that two or three years older and had left school or whatever. And they just had a, a bit more um, freedom, you know. But I'm glad I went to the second one. And there was a couple of hundred people there, 200, maybe 300 max at the second gig. And it was great. It's like, it's, it's, um, what were, sorry, prior to that show, had you been to other concerts or was that the first I've been concert? to, yeah, yeah, yeah. We were all going to concerts. All of us, Johnny, you know, John, Johnny was one of the gang of us. And there was a big gang from within shore and the environs. And we used to go to loads of gigs. Yeah. And continued to do so. Um, you know, and, and I wasn't that picky really about what I'd go and see. I mean, if, if it was like guitars, loud guitars, you know, I, um, yeah, I would go to anything I could. I, you know, prior to that, I would, you know, go and, I mean, you know, Queen, Thin Lizzy, I've seen, I mean, the list is pretty, you know, whoever was on the road in the 70s playing medium to smallish venues in Manchester, I was there, you know, I saw The Who, Queen, uh, Rush, uh, Blue Oyster Cult, Ted Nugent, Uriah Heep, Mink Deville. I get a little confused over, like, you know, like, was it 75 or 77? Absolutely, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. But that was my window. You know, I missed Bowie and Alice Cooper, um, the School's Out tour, and I missed Ziggy. Yeah, I missed the Ziggy tour. It was just a bit too early for me. 
Um, you know, I, I just wasn't old enough to get off the leash to get away to go and get do it, you know. But that was it. And we were music obsessive. You know, Bowie was like a god, you know, Roxy Music, Alice Cooper, Sensational Alex Harvey Band. And then they were like slightly less known bands that were even, to me, great, like Bebop Deluxe, we loved. And, uh, you know, uh, somebody at my high school, one of the teachers knew Bill Nelson from college. And he was like, from that point on to all of us, that guy was like a legend that he actually knew a professional musician who happened to be a brilliant guitar player and was in like a semi underground glam rock edgy band like Bebop Deluxe, mm -hmm. you know, that wasn't because, you know, Bowie was great. We all love Bowie, but he was mainstream. You know what I mean? It was, he'd gone to the level of success. So we started looking for bands who were a little less famous that we could kind of like own a bit, you know, you know, that mentality, you might have come across it. I definitely, <laughs> as you will find out as this interview progresses, that is exactly my wheelhouse too. <laughs> so, you know what I'm talking about, you know, oh, we find the up and coming band and, you know, we guard our, we pride our uh, ownership of that band, you know. Well, like one band like that, I was kind of wondering if it was an influence on you or if you were a fan of them at all was Hector, because, you know, you do wind up putting out a record on the same label that they were on DJM. Hector! Remind me about Hector. I'm not, I'm like, who, what was, what was that about? It's who, kind of like, what was it's very like a, more of the second tier, but glam, um, but like definitely a harder kind of take on glam. I, I missed, I missed Hector. I did see Hustler oh. <laughs> who supported Queen who had a hit single. It was really, yeah. Hector, no. Hustler, yes. There were a million bands knocking Absolutely. about. Yeah. Know? What about Dr. Feelgood? Oh, yeah, saw them. Yeah, they, they blew up. They were very popular. Eddie and the Hot Rods mm -hmm. were also very early because they, you know, in England, what happened was a lot of the um, early, they were like pub rock bands, R&B, kind of high energy R&B bands became punky very quickly when, when suddenly, you know, when they got the wind of what was happening with the Pistols, mm -hmm. you know, they sped their stuff up. And, uh, yeah, Dr. Feelgood were definitely very acceptable to us. Uh, we like them a lot. Well, because you've got such a defined guitar sound, like it's such a signature sound that's in through all your bands, like through all the bands you were in. Where was that coming from? Like, who are the guitar heroes? Is it like Johnny Thunders or like, what are the songs? Yeah, that? there was definitely, oh, that, no, that's a great question. They, they, it evolved. I mean, I certainly liked early on but uh, you know scott gorham and um and brian robertson from thin lizzy mm -hmm. um i could I, I really spent hours trying to copy live and dangerous um you know particular parts of their um the the things that i really like copied in my house to try and learn how to play guitar um bad company and mock the hoople would have been demick ralph's was a very tasteful guitar player and not too complicated so that for a young guy you could get into what he was doing you know it wasn't like trying to play like brian may which was like what is yeah. that guy doing you know what i mean like that's <laughs> like witchcraft you know like like mick ronson obviously was was you know right ill there as one of the primary you know guys mm. um that was the kind of stuff paul cut off from free um was also part of my you know thing 
Those were my ones. I, you know, I sort of missed some of the obvious ones like Jimmy Page. Hendrix was a big one for me, but all the kids in my neighborhood, like a lot, I remember a lot of the guys all had strats and wanted to be like Jimi Hendrix. And I, I thought it was a bit overdone. And I also just thought he was so good that he was like beyond my realm of Everest. You know, he was on another level. So I just thought, well, I better leave Jimi Hendrix alone. And I think, and then M Punk happened. And I really got into, you know, the Dolls, Johnny Thunders and Sil Sylvain were really resonated, uh, as did, um, I, and obviously the Stooges, James Williamson, more yeah. so than the Ashton Brothers, but James Williamson, you know, Raw Power was a massive album in Withenshaw, being passed around between guitar players, you know, <laughs> so New York Dolls' first album and Raw Power was kind of like, you know, we all had it. Johnny, we all had our stuff we liked. Johnny liked Rory Gallagher. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. that was his yeah. thing, you know. Like, we all had rock guitarists we liked, but somehow punk just spoke to us more. And it was exciting, and it was dangerous to be a punk rocker. And, you know, I mean, people would attack you in the streets if you dressed uh, punky in England initially. For about a year or so, it was a bit tasty, you know. Yeah. Well, and it's funny because, like, you you know, obviously Johnny as well. Like, both of you guys have such different styles, but, you know, both are coming oh, from yeah, the same you, place. Absolutely. The same. That's what's brilliant, you know, and that's what's, that's what's such a lot of fun. He's got such an amazing style that couldn't be more different than mine. Yeah. You know, um, uh, the, 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 you know, and, you know, I'm good at what I do. He's, he's good at what he does. Um, you know, and that, and that was it. But the, the the actual, you know, the seeds were sown by the same basic influences. And then he just, I just got kind of what I guess being a little bit older, I got my first quote unquote professional break earlier than Johnny. So like I, you know, I guess Johnny was still searching around for his style, you know, and that kind of came to fruition more when the Smiths came together in the early eighties. You know, set by '79, I'd got a record. I was in a band that had a record deal. Late '79, I moved to London. You know, to pursue. You know, it was a careerist move mm -hmm. for me. You know, I, 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 I you know, I mean, I, I touch. What had happened was I'd ended up in a band called the Nosebleeds um, with Stephen Morrissey as the singer. They were the other with your um, rock band that turned punk. Right when punk happened, they they released a single called "I Ain't Been to No Music School" with the best B side Ed. ever. The B side of that uh, single it, is so good, "Fascist Pig." Yeah, 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 yeah. It was a great band. I mean, you know, it was Ed Banger and the Nosebleeds. They were the other Withenshaw band. They used to be called Wild Ram. They did a famous gig with Slaughter and the Dogs at our local civic center that Johnny went to. I didn't, and well, they became a punk band. And I got hired to be a lookout for the guys because we all went around in a van mm -hmm. and they would just jump out with a bucket of paste, a brush and a bunch of posters that had been sent up on the train from London from the record companies. And I just got hooked up with the local Manchester area um, fly postering, which is illegal. But like the record companies, I remember they would go and collect the posters from the railway station in Manchester because they'd send them up on a thing called Red Star, which was railway's version of um, a messenger service. Okay. It was all a very bizarre set of circumstances. 
And one of the guys who was involved in that was in the nosebleeds. And what happened was the singer, Eddie Garrity, and the guitar player, um, Vinnie Riley, left the band. Mm -hmm. And Vinnie Riley went on to become the Durutti column. And he always a hippie anyway, and he was like, he wanted to be Steve Hillage. Uh, he was a very progressive guitar player and went on to, I mean, he's in the movie, 24-Hour Party People. Yep. Tony Wilson from Factory used to pour money on him and, you know, nobody would go to his gigs and nobody bought his records, but he was a genius. Mm -hmm. So that left that left the bass player, Pete Crooks, and the drum the drummer, Toby, needing a guitar player for the band because they wanted to keep going. So through me being, I suppose, a bit precocious and I kind of tried to look good and was a bit switched on. They went, Hey Billy, you can play guitar, can't you? I went, well, a little bit. And they went, Vinny and Vinny and Eddie have left the band. Do you want to audition? And I went, all right. So I remember auditioning at Pete Crooks, mum's house in his kitchen. And the, the two things I remember about it were that at the time his parents owned their house which was a new, because council houses in England were owned by the council and they were rented to poor people to provide accommodation. But once in a while, if you became a wealthy poor person, you'd buy your own council house. Um, and I remember that I went, and I looked and went, this is kind of fancy. Um, went in this house and the other thing was that his mum had a corgi dog mm -hmm. that was doing the worst farts that I can ever imagine. And those are the two things I remember about auditioning. And the audition was, you must play the intro to I Ain't Been To No Music School. And if any of you ever bother and have got nothing better to do, listen to it. It's actually quite complicated. Mm -hmm. It's involving harmonics and stuff. Because Vinnie was quite a technically, Vinnie Riley was a technically gifted guitar player. You know, it went into a very basic punk riff after that. But the intro of the song was murder. So I managed to somehow learn the beginning of it, got the gig, and as I'm leaving Pete Crooks' house, he says, hey, so Billy, um, do you know any singers? And it was a very prophetic moment because I said, well, I've been going to gigs with this guy called Stephen from Stretford, and he's really into the New York Dolls, and he writes kind of very interesting lyrics, but he's, I don't know whether he can sing he wants to be a singer, and we've talked about doing something. And he said, well, let's try him out then. And I said, but remember, like, you know, this is the days, we're talking 70, late 77, early 78. You know, people were still spitting. It was Jimmy Percy, and Oi was rearing its ugly head. And you know what I mean? It was yeah. like, and I said, you know, you've got to remember, like, Stephen's not like one of these kind of aggressive front men. You know, he's not, he's, he's not like that. And he was like, "Fuck it, try it." So uh, we we did, and um, that's how that that was the whole thing that ended up being in that little movie that got made recently. England is mine, mm -hmm. um, which is the story of Morrissey before until he met Johnny Marr. You know, it's not about the Smiths; it's before the Smiths, mm -hmm. and um, that's how that happened. That was the true story. What was the um, what vocal did he do? Was it like the same sort of vocal he does in the Smiths, or was he trying to do a like a harder no, vocal? I don't I don't remember a damn thing. A few <laughs> of my mates, honestly, I don't. We no, wrote bro, I understand. I don't remember. Honestly, I don't remember a thing. I remember he wrote great lyrics. Um, he was a bit shy, um, but he was funny. 
you know, and that's the thing a lot of people these days have always missed about him is that he had great sense of humour. Um, and I'm trying to think. My mate said his voice was a lot higher when, when he first started. Wow. Um, I, I honestly can't comment because I just don't remember. It's just so weird to picture those songs and those single on that single being sung in his ah, voice. Well, it's excellent that you bring that up because we didn't do any of their material, including I Ain't Been To No Music School. We refused to play it. <laughs> so when we actually did a gig, we did five of our own compositions and a cover version, which might have well have been something by the Ronettes or one of those like doo-wop kind of songs that the, that, that the New York Dolls used to cover. Yeah. Um, that's apparently what we did. I can't remember any of it. I was so scared it was a blur. I, all I remember was one of the gigs, we were supporting the band Magazine. Mm -hmm. we, we were brilliant. Yes. And Mo, Mo, uh, Stephen was good friends with Howard DeVoto's uh, girlfriend, Linda, who would, did design for the Buzzcocks. She was an artist. And that's how we got on the bill. And I remember that, we played, I kind of remember what I wore, and I remember that the last song we did was called Peppermint Heaven, and he threw out um, sweets, candies, you know, what we yeah. call toffees, at the end of the show. Never told anybody. He was just finishing the show and was throwing them out to the crowd. So that was it. That, yeah. that was my memory of that. And, and unfortunately, I kind of had to let it go because I got offered to join a band with a wage and a record deal um, the Slaughter and the Dogs guys, that band had broken up and they wanted me as the second guitar player and they said, you know, there's a wage, an apartment in London, a record deal, you know, and I'm still living with my parents, you know, on the dole, fighting with my dad and the nosebleeds had just done two gigs. You know, in retrospect, it was like, oh, well, Morrissey, wow, blah, blah, why would you leave? And I'm like, well, I left because I was, you know, it was a... Totally economic careerist move. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It makes a lot yeah, of sense. No, it a, I wish I felt sad about it. The only little confession is that I, I, I just wasn't quite aware of the impact that had on Morrissey back at the time. Because it wasn't a rejection of him, because I was the one who got him to sing in the first place. He wanted to, and I was the first person who gave him a shot and wrote songs with him. It wasn't that I didn't have any confidence in it. It was just like a survival move. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, totally. it, it wasn't, you know, unfortunately. And uh, I just had to kind of, kind of, you know, put my best foot forward and clutch my opportunity at that moment. Yeah, I know. And it, it definitely, you know, and it's, you're, you're a kid too at that time. You're like a young person as well. I was a kid. I wasn't even 18. I was 17 and yeah. I moved to London, you know, and got in a band and had a record deal and they were managed by Bowie's old manager. I mean, it was all mind boggling stuff. <laughs> Absolutely. It's amazing. Mind boggling. It's, 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 it's wild when you think about the nosebleeds, it's almost like the punk Yardbirds when, when you think about everyone that was kind of in that band and what they would go on and do, it was like a, yeah, yeah. So yeah. Vinny, you know, Dorothy Column, Eddie, you know, ended up getting in a band with Slaughter and the Dogs, then back out. And then Toby was drumming with the Blue Orchids and, and Nico, Nico for a long time. Yeah. Uh, you know, that, that was, that was true. Um, so that was, uh, that was a bit of a thing. Yeah. It, By the it, way, I've got a confession to make. I've got to kind of have a munch on a sandwich here, listeners. So uh, <laughs> yeah. okay. aging, this is what the aging rock star does when he's preparing for a gig, which I'm doing tonight. The first gig I've done in eight months. I've been in the gym. 
and I've got to eat something or I'm going to have a blood sugar collapse. So, you know. It's A-OK, completely understandable. It's like it's, it's like we're, we're all having lunch, my lunch with Billy Duffy. It's like lunch with Billy Duffy. It's something semi-healthy, but I'm chewing now. Don't be offended. I know it's bad manners, but, you know, hey. It's a, a podcast. Punk, it's a podcast. It's a punk. Yeah, exactly. It's a punk podcast. We can we can let our hair down here. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'll cut it up. All right, then. But also, were you a fan of any of those later Ed Banger records? Because he did like another three or four singles afterwards, right? Um, I'm not, yeah, he, nah, no, not really. I mean, not that I wasn't a fan. I just wasn't aware of it. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't like... I, I moved to London and I kind of was in survival mode because I only, um, this band was called Studio Sweethearts. We did a single, it's Mick and Howard from Slaughter and the Dogs and the drummer, the second drummer from the band Eater, who obviously, a guy called Phil Rowland. And I'm still friends with everybody actually, to this day. Mick Rossi, I see a lot. I've seen Howard Bates recently, Phil Rowland. Moved to Los Angeles. He's into like graphic design, but he—it's a small world, and I'm still friends with those guys. But that band didn't really take off. We got a deal and did a single, but it just didn't happen. And I think we were running out of money, so they decided to reform Slaughter and the Dogs and bring back Wayne Barrett, the singer. And they had to kick me out of the apartment because they needed a room from Wayne because Wayne had moved to France to live. So they were like, uh, Billy, we're reforming Slaughter the Dogs. You've got to go back to Manchester. And I was like, fuck that. <laughs> and then they were having a fight with one of the roadies, Shed, which wasn't, wasn't a great idea because he was definitely capable of kicking the shit out of me. But I was a bit upset because I was living with my girlfriend. She was in the room with me, a girl called Karen. And, um, you know, I was panicking because I didn't want to go back to Manchester and neither did she, you know what I mean? And that mm. was my... You know, they were like, yeah, you got to move out this weekend. I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> it, that single is amazing. That I Believe single, that song is ridiculous. <laughs> well, I was Mick Ross's vision. I mean, he, Mick was always a rock and roller, and he got Mick Ronson to be involved with the Slaughter and the Dogs album. And there were, you know, Mick was like a rock and roller, very similar taste to me, like rock. What got the punk thing, and they just were thereabouts when punk happened. They were alive at the Roxy, they were there, you know. Mm-hmm. It was half of being a punk at the time was circumstantial, you know, mm-hmm. and opportunism, you know, and just being at the right place at the right time, you know. No, definitely. And, and like, I guess, had prior to the, the uh, these two bands, was it just um, sorry, after this band breaks up. Um, did you do another band immediately in London or did you like, well, I, yeah, yeah, I was in London. I managed to, well, the band wasn't doing so well. So I got a part-time job at the Dole, which is the only time I ever had like a nine to five job, which was actually an eight to five job. Okay. I did that because yeah, the guy said, look, we don't have an unemployment problem in this part of London. If you don't get a job in two weeks, you're getting a job here because you've got qualifications from school. I've seen you. I've seen your school report. <laughs> so, and as true to his word, he made me work at the Dole. <laughs> I was signing checks for people. It was the worst thing ever. Wow. Oh. I swore I'd never work in an office after that. And the only reason they kept me in the office. 
was I was good at table tennis. <laughs> no, seriously. Yeah. And the, and they had a rivalry with the rival Dole office <laughs> at the inter-Dole office tennis. And I was in Hendon and the rivals were in a place called Finchley. And um, we had, they had these tournaments, and I was literally the only person at Hendon because we were terrible. I was actually capable of winning a game. We were never going to beat them, so he didn't fire me for quite a while. <laughs> that was that was going on in the background. That is while, awesome. While I was still in the band, you know, doing I believe I was actually working at Hendon Dole writing checks for people uh, who sickness benefit. It was mental. And being the secret ace of the ping pong team. Yeah, you know, yeah, right, that was it. I, I was quite good at it. And, and luckily that kept me employed for another month because they were dying to get rid of me. <laughs> See, it's lucky you weren't good at football. It's lucky you chose to be good at uh, ping pong instead because. Well, yeah, I was, you know, anyway. Good enough at football, so I should say. Yeah, I mean, basically what happened after that, I was in London, didn't want to go back to Manchester and live with my parents. Um, although I used to go back and visit, you know, I got established in London. I ended up through Phil Rowland getting a connection of friends from the sort of North London area who were loosely based around the band Eater, mm-hmm. one of which was Andy Blade, who uh, very shortly thereafter um, kind of told me about we both got a job at a hospital um, near where he was living. So, so I got somewhere to live, and I, I forget what happened, but I know that I ended up working at a hospital in London as a porter. And that's significant because a porter, you work weird hours. So I could kind of continue being in a band, yet have a job. And then once I'd learned how to manipulate the system, I could do work like a double shift one day. So I'd work like a 14-hour day and get paid enough money for almost a week. And I literally could go on tour, I, you know, with bands and stuff. I could go away for the weekend and still get, you know, that was me being a little crafty and a survivalist, you know? Well, that's the musician's dream job where you can still gig and get paid for a day job. Yeah, it was a very significant moment. I remember going for the thing they were trying to give me a clerical job. And I said, "What? what's the deal? And they said, well, it's a fixed wage, a salary. And you will um, work, and they went, you know, you've got these, what we used to call O levels, these qualifications in England. And I went, have you got any other jobs? And they went, well, we could, you could work as a porter, but that's for people who don't have any, you know, qualifications. It's manual labor. And they went, but you can do overtime, you can work shifts. And I went, oh, I like that. And that's what I did for about 18 months at the Whittington Hospital, as in Dick Whittington and the cat, you know, that. That, that fairy story, whatever it was. He, there's a hospital in London, and uh, that's where I worked and pursued bands, and I got in another band after that. Um, Lonesome No More? Which was, yeah, Lonesome No More. And Nick Holmes, the drummer in Lonesome No More, I think was the drum tech for Phil Rowland. Oh, wow, so okay. Nick Holmes, that's the connection. So Phil Rowland, that's the Eater connection. You know, they, we, we, they, they, they start to intertwine because Slaughter and the Dogs and Eater were kind of buddies as bands. Mm-hmm. And there was a, I kind of benefited from that sort of connectivity in London, got established in London through them. And then Nick Holmes said, oh, I'm in band called Lonesome No More. And he went, and then as soon as I heard that the girls singing had sung on Johnny Thunder's Solo Alone album, 
Yeah. I had to be in that band. You know, like, I had to join Lonesome No More. Have to. She's actually sung on a Johnny Thunders record. I must be in your band. Unfortunately, at the time, they had another guitar player. He was a super nice chap. And it was so in the end, they they added me to the band and kept him. But really, they, they really wanted me to be replacing. But they, he was such a nice bloke that nobody had the heart to just kick him out. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So they added me and he just kind of got edged out slowly. They just turned him down in the mix gradually that way. Yeah, and then kind of, you know, it was a great guy. It was a shame, you know. Yep. No, you definitely went up against a pretty good guitar player yourself, so. Well, you know. well we did a single. The connection was Kula Kakuli, who was the singer, and she died recently, sadly, but the singer in Lonesome No More. Lonesome No More were kind of like a punk rock pretenders before the pretenders. Okay, yeah, I love that single. Absolutely. It was a girl it was a girl singer with a you know very similar setup to the Pretenders, which was kind of ironic when the Pretenders blew up so big. Uh Cooler's sister was married to the singer from the only ones, Peter Perrett, and managed them. Her brother, Harry, had been in Squeeze. He was the original bass player in Squeeze. So she again was connected to a different London scene of musicians. So from that Funnily enough, I met the guys from the band Japan. Okay. They were from Southeast London, and they were going to produce us. David Sylvian and the drummer, who was his brother. There's so many bizarre stories, man. Can't wait. To, one day I'll do a book. Oh, that'd be an amazing, unbelievable book. So were you were you a big Only Ones fan as well? Because I know Johnny, when he was on the Me, show, freaked out about him. Johnny was a bit, yeah, and he came to see us because we did a tour. We were doing weekends. We'd play Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Or, And I was still employed at the hospital. And we'd all jump in the bass player's car. Um, and uh, we'd drive off. And we opened for the only ones at several gigs, including Manchester. And, and the tour was funny because it was the only ones. And then the band before them was called Wasted Youth. And they were a pretty good band. They were out yeah. of London. Not the American Absolutely. Wasted Youth. There was a British no. Gothic. I know. Absolutely. I know that band. I'm trying to remember the label they were on, but I know exactly the British Wasted Youth. They were on Bridge House Records, which was the pub that they came out of because the bass player, Darren's dad, financed the band. And the Bridge House was a pub that did gigs in East London, mm -hmm. Canning Town. And they were on Bridge initially on Bridge House Records. And... Uh, Again, suddenly I've met other people from another scene. Um, Rocco, the guitar player, went on to be in Flesh for Lulu. Okay, yeah. They were into the Velvet Underground. Funnily enough, they all used Gretsch's. I'm still, I managed to, at this point, have a white Les Paul because mm -hmm. I wanted to be like Mick Ronson or Steve Jones or Sylvain Sylvain or, you know what I mean? Like, my thing was a white Les Paul. They had these Gretsch's. I was like, oh, they're kind of interesting because they were into the Velvet Underground and like the only ones, they were very into smack, oh, which yeah. proved to be a bit of a problem long term. But we'll get to that. Yeah. Uh, so uh, anyway, so happy days. I'm working at a hospital, managing to finagle the system, getting good money and not really working very hard. Um, you, you know, being a bit of a chancer for Manchester, I saw the system, you know, you you could take, in those days in England, you could take three days off sick 
without even giving them a doctor's note as long as you called in before noon. Oh, and wow. if you wanted more days off sick after that, you just have to get a doctor's note. So if you know a friendly doctor and you walk in, you go, my lower back's killing me, doctor. You know, you get another doctor's note and then you're off for another two days yeah. on pay, which yeah. is why socialised medicine, <laughs> unfortunately, I mean, if I'm not the only one ruining the system, you know, sadly, but you do what you got to do. It's a confession. I apologise to anybody, but... The National Elf was great. Mm. Very good-intentioned people. Yeah. We digress. But anyway, so Only Once Tour was good, and that was kind of my druggy phase. I mean, I was even... Lonesome No More were all smackheads as well. It turned out in the end, and uh, everybody's doing... Because in England at the time, the real two main drugs of choice were speed, obviously, mm -hmm. um, and heroin. Derivatives of heroin, tar, you know kind of stuff, either smoked heroin or whatever, you know, because they were easily available and cheap. Mm -hmm. You know, for 10 quid, you could get out of it for 24 hours on heroin, pretty much. So that era and that those bands all got into it, you know, the only... I mean, I'm amazed Peter Pettit is still alive. And not only alive, come back and doing well. I mean, he must be 70. Yeah, he was just on the podcast six months ago. Um, right, brilliant. I mean, God bless. I mean, yeah. very talented guy. They were great guys. Those guys, well, I learned a lot from them. I mean, the drummer was in Spooky Tooth. Yeah, I know. Which was Luther Grosvenor, who ended up being Ariel Bender in Mott the Hoople, who I just played with last year in England. We did a festival, co-headlining a festival with Mott the Hoople, which is, you know, one of my favourite all-time bands. So, you know, life comes a weird full circle around, and, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting how things kind of intersect. Very weird. But anyway, so I'm in Lonesome No More. I'm experimenting a bit too much with heroin. Mm -hmm. uh, it, I only smoked it. Uh, and, and and I remember one day I went round to hang out with the with the singer and Cooler and the, the, the bass player Malcolm. They were a couple. And 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 I just it, I just I smoked some heroin. Sorry kids, I don't recommend it. And um you know, I woke up about seven hours later and went this stuff's going to either kill me or I'm never going to, you know. So I, it, it just kind of, I, I'm somehow, I can't quite remember what happened, but the drugs started getting more important than the music. We did a single, Turned Insane. I did play on it. Um, I didn't write the song. You know, so remember at this point, I did write songs with Morrissey that never got recorded that I can't remember. Mm -hmm. From now on, I've never written a song. So I'm always joining. Your, the, sorry, you weren't even writing the guitar part on that record because it. I, I think that existed before me. I'm not oh, sure. Yeah, I might. I might have been. I mean, I certainly would write a riff, but I wasn't a songwriter. Okay. Yeah. You know, totally. I could come up with a lick and a part. I certainly looked good and did <laughs> did all the business, but I wasn't writing, and that's significant for me because I started getting a bit of a fear that I couldn't write music. Mm -hmm. You know. Mm -hmm. uh, because when I did it with Morrissey, I didn't know any better. But later, even you know, through quite a few bands, really until the cult was the next time that I really had to step up and start writing songs. You know, mm -hmm. um, so I'm in Lonesome No More, and then I think it just fizzles out. I know there was drugs involved. We did have that record that came out. I, it, my memory's a bit hazy. Then what happened? I'm in London. And uh, 
can't remember what happens. Oh. Theater of Hate, right? Yeah, Theater of Hate. So I end up getting a job working in a clothes shop on the King's Road, which is obviously very part, big and partial of punk rock history. Mm-hmm. We all used to go down to the King's Road and hang out. Um, but, you know, I certainly was, I, I wasn't in, we used to laugh at the people with the mohawks and all that. We were like, you are in right. You know, because that, what had happened was, it, it after the Pistols broke up in 78, it sort of split. And we just looked a little bit of disdain with the people who were wearing the leather jackets and the kilts and the spiky hair. And it didn't, that wasn't what it was when it started. And that wasn't their fault that they weren't around when it really started. You know, there was only X amount of people who experienced true real punk rock mm-hmm. by being there. Mm-hmm. And those that remember it know that there wasn't really a uniform as such. And it had become a thing. You know, it's a bit like the way you look at hippies, you know, now or whatever, you know, or a, a teddy boy or a somebody stuck in psychedelia. You would look at them and go like, you're a bit like a cartoon character, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's when it becomes codified but, in postcard punk. Yeah, you know, whatever. So we were all searching to try and do music that was different. You know, nobody... It's very important to understand that by 1979-80, things had moved on. So to me, the fans of punk were forming bands like Killing Joke and the Psychedelic Furs mm-hmm. and a lot of other bands that were going forwards. There's a million of them, Gang of Four and what you know. I mean, there was a lot of people like we'd seen the punk bands, we'd been to the gigs, we'd loved the Banshees and the Stranglers and the Damned and the, the Adverts and all of that shit. We loved it all. But I didn't want to play that. That was the key. It was like, that was brilliant. I've just had the best two years of my life, but I don't... So that was kind of... People were getting... Looking, you know, and there was all sorts of weird revivals. Mod came back in London. Yeah. There was bands like Secret Affair, and, and you know, the, the Jam guy, never my thing, the Jam, they turned into Style Council. Well, I did Style Council. People were reaching. The Stray Cats came over. Mm-hmm. Suddenly there was these three... Really good-looking American, amazing musicians who made like rockabilly as exciting as the Sex Pistols. Because if you ever saw, you know, the Stray Cats pre nineteen eighty, they were phenomenal. Right around that, that it was unbelievable. You know, and there was also then psychabilly happened, where punks were kind of getting rockabilly hairdos, and it was really aggressive and loads of tattoos, and it the was meters and all those bands. Right, exactly. So that was the the environment in which. You know, I ended up, I was working on the King, down the King's Road, um, selling clothes and going out to clubs all the time. Uh, at the same time, a lot of the fans of punk, suddenly the, the you know, Spando Bali are forming mm-hmm. and bands like Duran Duran. I know it sounds weird and you're like, well, what's that got to do with punk rock? Quite a lot of them were punk fans. Mm-hmm. you got to understand that a lot of the people who were originally into punk didn't get a mohawk and sniff glue sitting on the side of a street. (laughs) You know what I mean? They formed bands and they, they considered it to be a progressive thing. And I thought, and that's what happened, you know? So there was this, this early eighties melting pot of like anything goes, you know, you have a, you know, have a bit of a rockabilly haircut, but you, and, and, but you were in 50 shoes, but you're still wearing like a biker jacket or, you, you know what I'm saying? It was like a hybridization period. Yeah, it, also it's just like an incredibly 
I don't know, like fruitful period for British music. Like there's hundreds and hundreds of these independent singles coming out. And you're like, you're saying in all sorts of genres, all kind of kicked off by punk, but people taking it two tone. Oh way, yeah. Minimal and synth. None of that would have happened without punk. But yeah. the, the key to, to, to my understanding living there was that punk was great. It was done, you know, take the energy and the spirit, but move forwards. Mm-hmm. And hence that's why I ended up like playing a Gretsch. With the court, I wanted to find in theatre of hate because I wanted to find like a guitar that wasn't. I, I was like the Les Paul, I'm a bit over it. I want something new, something challenging, exciting. You know, totally. So and so, like, was that like because you know, theatre of hate is at least historically looked back upon as being kind of like a goth band or or being part of like you know a darker kind of wave of music. Was that what you guys were kind of playing in when, or was that what the band was okay. playing when you joined? Well, Fear of Hate, I, I, the only the, the best music on the radio, which still wasn't a lot of radio around in England, was John Peel's show. Yeah. The guy John Peel, the legend, he was playing progressive music 10 o'clock every night on BBC Radio 1. And I heard this band, Fear of Hate, and I was like, kind of sounds like John, John, John Lydon, but not really. And he looks, and I saw a picture of him, and he looks like kind of James Dean, but a bit punk rock. And what happened was... So there was all this music, all these different hybridizations and people exploring kind of things who were all fans of punk trying to do something new. And I ended up, uh, I don't know, Lonesome No More had fizzled out for me. I was working in, in Johnson's, having a great old time, I had a great job in the, one of the coolest shops in London. And I was going out to a lot of clubs. And this is a true story, dead funny. I was friendly with Boy George, who had a bit of a man crush on me at the time. It's actually in his book. Mm-hmm. Um, and he used to sort of chase me around the clubs at the time. Um, and um, But he was, a, he was a laugh. I'm still friends with George. He was great. Yeah. But he, and unbeknownst to me, he'd had some sort of relationship with Kirk Brandon from Theatre of Hate okay. that was subject to a very lengthy court case in England, but which I have not, I don't know anything about, but it was before my time. But, I'm in a club, and George goes, oh, Billy, you're a guitar player, right? And yeah, I'm looking for a band. And he went, well, that guy over there with the blonde hair, kind of dressed like you, he said, uh, he's got a great band. You should go and talk to him. I was like, okay. And that literally is what I did. Yeah. I went over to Kirk Brandon, and he looked me up and down, because that's what Kirk does with people. And... um and and I got an audition with Theatre of Hate. That, that's awesome. And so I guess it just was, you know, natural that you were going to play in this band after that. Um, well, it came around my... I remember, I remember I was living in London, in the centre of London, which was bizarre at the time, right in off Oxford Street with Howard Bates from Slaughter and the Dogs. We were roommates. He'd somehow got an apartment in the centre of London, which was very bizarre in those days. Nobody lived in the centre of London. Um, and Kirk came round before the audition and because I had a good job I had money in a car and he was like there's a funny funny little anecdote two things I think I had a picture of a Gretsch mm-hmm. I'd never seen through it fake play I'd just seen a photograph of them and I their music a little bit and I had a picture of a Gretsch on the wall and I'd been seeing the Stray Cats and loving them um, he said, oh, what kind of guitar is that? I said, that's a Gretsch White Falcon. And he went, 
Why is that on your wall? I said, well, you know, I've, I've always loved the guitar since like Sylvain Sylvain from the New York Dolls or even Neil Young. I've always liked it. I said, you know, if I ever get enough money, I'll probably buy one if I get in a band. Because at the time I still had a little Gibson or something, you know. Mm. They went, oh, interesting. I didn't know that he played a Gretsch as well. Never seen the band. So I didn't know until I got to rehearsals. that he And he thought, oh, that was, you know, I thought that was kind of interesting. And then secondly, and this is really stupid, I had a picture of a dog, an English Bull Terrier, which I've had a couple of, and I always like Bull Terriers. You know, they're the kind of dog you either love or you hate. Yeah. You know, they're not really... You know, they're not not a regular looking dog. And I've always had a soft spot for Bull Terriers since maybe the movie Patton or something. I don't know. And um, and I'd somehow just cut it and a picture of one and stuck it on the wall. And he went, I grew up with those dogs. My dad had those dogs. So I think he felt it was fate. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I look right. I, I looked the right image, some sort of combination of like rockabilly with a slightly militaristic undertone. And um, and that was it. Anyway, I auditioned, got the job, joined the band, had to leave Johnson's. Within a week, I'd gone from that to rehearsing and playing festivals and going to Berlin and Sweden and Amsterdam. Within like two weeks, my mind was blown. Um, it was very bizarre. And I did ended up getting a Gretsch, a White Falcon, and used that in Theatre of Hay. And uh, all that happened, you know, very quickly. It was a very pivotal moment for me because I chanced my arm in this band and uh, I spent all my savings on a Gretsch, which, which you know, at the time was about £800, which in 1981 was a, was a lot of money. Yeah. But it was. It was everything I owned. And, uh, you know, Theatre of Eight kind of bankrupted me because they toured tough. You know, it, they, you know, it was all guys in a van, no per diems. That was a new one. I, I went... Do you do PDs? You know the the money you get yeah. to eat when you're. We don't do them. This oh is your wage. So by the time by the time I was done with Theatre of Eight and I got fired about a year later because I kind of I didn't I didn't get on with Kirk. Kirk got a bit mental. Uh, we're friend. Kirk is a bit mental, but I love him and we're friends now. But you know I got booted out of the band. Interestingly enough, on tour right before a gig where the Southern Death Cult were opening for us. Um, and so I got kicked out of the band. I ended up broke, sleeping on the floor of the uh, of the sax player. It was kind of an interesting year that was, 1981 into 1982. You know, I went on top of the pops, which was a big deal. Yeah. You can see me there with black hair, like kind of scared looking up at the monitors because you see yourself, you know, it's a bizarre experience to be on stage miming with about 50 people in there on a national TV show you've grown up with. Yeah. You know, it was all mind-blowing. And then there's pictures of you as a monitor above you that the you, people don't see. So I keep looking up because I'm looking up at, how do I look? <laughs> it was pretty funny shit, man. I, and, you know, that was great. And that's obviously that's how I met Ian Asbury, was that Theatre of Hate had a hit called Westworld, I didn't play on the album, but I did play on Westworld on Top of the Pops because we had to re-record the song to go on the TV show because that was a union requirement in England, Musicians' Union. You must re-record. Uh, what we didn't know was generally what bands did was get the union rep drunk and swap the tapes <laughs> and pretend to record it. That's actually what happened. We were too dumb. 
because we were an inexperienced <laughs> punk band. Yeah. Basically, self, I mean, that's the one thing about theatre of, hey, I learned a lot. They were truly independent. They were self-financing. Until Westworld, and that was on Stiff Records, they would use money that they would generate from T-shirt sales at gigs to print up their own albums, which was a cassette they'd made of their own gigs. You know, I mean, it was very kind of like a lot of bands were doing it. They, 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 they were. I learned a lot about that. They were just a self-financing. They, their manager was a guy called Teresa, who apparently did merch for the Clash. And he was a very much a Scottish, um, well, he was a bit of a chancer, Terry, but he managed the band, a lot of charisma, a lot of Scottish Glaswegian front. And um, that was my introduction to another level of being in a band, you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, like, like, you know, touring around Europe, being on the TV, that was another level. It had all been a bit part-time up until that, you know? Were, was it was theater of hate really popular in Europe? I would imagine so. Yeah, absolutely. We toured nonstop in Europe. I was, we were, I was in Holland. We used to go to the Holland every through. You know, I mean, the band got big. We never got massive. I mean, it was a funny thing. While I was in the band, I mean, we probably the biggest gig we did would have been two thousand people. Mm-hmm. Um, but having said that, the band were very popular, and Westworld took them on to another level. It was a great album. It was produced by Mick Jones of The Clash. We supported The Clash on one of their tours in England, which was a great experience. And when you asked me about Theatre of Hate and Gothic, that scene, you know, there was like Killing Joke doing their thing. There was Theatre of Hate doing their thing. And there was Bauhaus more over in the Gothic thing. Theatre of Hate to me were more like rockabilly militaristic stuff. You know, like the yeah. Clash Combat Rock look. It, it was part Marlon Brando, part Martin Sheen in Apocalypse Now. Okay. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like I'm trying to sort of, you know, that. And, and remember, it's all about the image. You know, it's like we, we, what you looked like was a kind of an expression of like where your head was at that supported your music. And you I know, guess it that- was a complimentary thing. You know, it was a statement. You didn't just throw, you know, shorts and a T-shirt on, you know. Yeah. Thankfully, uh, I can get away with that now. Because well, yeah, so can I. But look, yeah, I, I mean, I still don't. But it's important to understand that you know, for, in British culture, certainly, yeah, a lot of us didn't. You know, we didn't have any money, so street culture of whatever ethnicity and whatever era, it comes down to like, well, the way I dress is at least something I can control. I'm not worrying about what car to buy because I don't have any money. Mm-hmm. But, you know, cool shoes or cool sunglasses or a shirt or that is how you kind of mark your territory, you know, and separate yourself off from the herd. He's like, look at me. Look what I got. You know, it, it's so that's important to to realize it's subliminal. But all those bands, I mean, the Pistols, the Clash, I mean, man, image was huge for them. Oh, the aesthetic, you know, the horse of aesthetics in England is, is yeah, massive, massive. Like, every bit G- has unique style. Because, and my, Billy Duffy's personal two-bob opinion on that mm-hmm. is that most of those bands are working class. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not as important. I mean, you know, when you get into the Genesis, which is basically those kind of bands that were like, you know, Pink Floyd, they were like public school boys. You know, they were from a different class of you know, wealth and education and privilege, mm-hmm. God bless them. 
you know, we were all from, you know, working class, mostly Irish descended, you know, whatevers. And there were two worlds. And there still is in England, you know. I mean, that's just the way the, 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 the country is. But coming from that, you know, when you come from a wealthy, more wealthy family, you're not so concerned with that stuff. It didn't seem to me. You know, a lot of those bands, they would just be just outright weird and indulgent. You know, there was an edge to punk rock bands that was a bit more street and a bit more real. Yeah, like street rock and roll, I guess, is the other thing that punks sometimes. Yeah, play. of course, of course. And, and you know, like, you know, no, no judgments. I, I, you know, one's not better than the other. I know which one resonated with me. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't really interested in listening to Tales from Top of Your Graphic Oceans or, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, uh, Super not, Tramp. Not or, a prog uh, fan. Not a prog guy. At that time, at that, time, <laughs> I, there's a place for everything. I just wanted music that made me wanted to. Made me want to, you know, run around and chase women and punch things. You know, that's what I wanted to. That's what I needed. Yeah. You know, I didn't need to go off on a trip. Yeah. No, I, I, I can totally get. As you say, there's a time and place for everything, and there's definitely, you know, a time and a place for that slaughter in the dog school, a hundred percent. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, nowadays, obviously, you know, very different, man. You know, as I, as I approach, you know official old age you know i'm a di- you know different guy it's just it's fun to you know remember back but i um so where am i okay so listen yeah because i actually got to go and work soon so no i was gonna to say this just... has been this has been unbelievable billy and if you would ever consider coming back for a part two at some point down the line i would be very appreciative well we can yeah yeah i'm gonna be well i'm gonna yeah we can do we can do a part two let me let me just why don't we just let let me end up with the, let, let's wind up this conversation totally. Totally. as part one with Billy Duffy meets Asprey, Ian Asprey, and forms the cult, and we'll we'll call it good at that point, right? Yes, absolutely. That seems to that seems to be a sensible place to me to take a pause, and we can you know we can do something else after that. But um, so there I am. Um, I've been fired from Theatre of Hate. I'm I'm crashing around in London again without anywhere to live because I'd given up where I was living because I didn't want to pay rent and be on tour because I couldn't afford, you know, it. Mm-hmm. And um, so I'm in London and I get a job again working in a clothes shop in Kensington Market just to earn some cash. I think I signed back on the dole because um, Theatre of Hate had basically bankrupted me. As you said. Um, yeah, no, really had, seriously. Yeah. And then, so I get established. I'm living with... Theatre of Hate's merchandiser, a guy called Little Ian. And we're living in Brixton in Coldwater Lane in a place called Clifton Mansions, which was actually became a very famous squat. And ironically enough, about five years ago, it finally got cleared out. It, it, it might not have been, it was, at the time, it was some like, in England, in Victorian times, the rich decided to do these charities where they would house the poor in like, financed housing mm-hmm. and it wasn't a government thing it was more like private charities would do it you know the rich would do good works and give to these charities that would and these they would build these these places for low-income people to have somewhere to live right mm-hmm. um uh, so clifton mansions i believe was one of them um back in the day so by like 1981 it was just a cool place to live in brixton which at the time, was quite edgy, and but funnily enough, and it's, this is germane to the cult and everything. There was a little bit of a goth scene there, 
like the Sex Gang children were living there, and Andy, the singer from Sex Gang, was around the corner. Um, there was a few other band guys around in that area, all in cheap, you know, is that cheap the, housing. Is that the Batcave scene? So like, yeah, basically, it was the Batcave back era. Mm-hmm. So this is where goth kind of creeps into it. Like, you know, I never really considered myself that, although there was, you know... Um, plenty of opportunities. I mean, Southern Death Cult played with Bauhaus and Theatre of Hate. I thought Bauhaus were more goth, were a goth band. You know, I didn't think Theatre of Hate were gothic at all. But in general terms that, you know, they grouped it all together and either called it positive punk or goth or... And and there was a little bit of a social scene in Brixton in, in all this cheap housing. And um, I'm there. I'm friendly with... Uh, there was a, this is a funny thing. I was about to do a band with the singer from a band called UK Decay. Oh, guy yeah. Abbo. <laughs> Abbo has now gone on to be a music manager, I believe. I don't know who he manages, but he's done really well. He was always a very good businessman. UK Decay used to play with Theatre of Hate. Again, became friends, stayed friends. He wanted to do a new band and sought me out. And I literally was like, did one little thing trying to write songs with him because remember, between Morrissey and this moment, I'd really never written a song. I'd written a couple of licks. I had the guitar parts on the hop for Theatre of Hate, but I didn't write the hop. You know, I, did, I, I hadn't written a song. So I'm sort of panicking because I don't really have any income. So, and, and all that happens is because of this punk rock scene, and we're still friends with Southern Death Call, who were living 200 miles away in Bradford, my recollection is Ian's brother, Brian, who's a year younger than him, Brian Asprey showed up to stay in our apartment, me and Ian. Me and little Ian used to have people stay over all the time in the true punk rock fashion. Yes. You know, everybody was crashing on our sofa. And Brian Asprey showed up and he said, Mark, uh, Ian's looking for you. Um, he wants to talk to you about something. And I'm like, okay. He said, what are you doing? He wants to know what you're doing. Well, I'm like working in a clothes shop and I've started maybe jamming with Abbo from UK Decatur. He said, Oh, okay, well, well, so he so cut to, and this again is my best recollection. Ian Asprey shows up in London with a carrier bag of clothes <laughs> and an overcoat uh, and a mohawk uh, down, as was his one, and um, showed up in, in Brixton because you know, we're all sort of friends. Theatre of Hate and Sun Death Cult were quite very friendly personally as well. And he showed up and he said, um, I was just thinking if you wanted to do a band, I've left Sudden Death Cult, and, which I didn't know. And that's kind of roughly what happened. He felt that he wasn't comfortable with the attitude of the other guys in Sudden Death Cult. And I was like, I was a bit shocked because they were on the up and up. You know what I mean? They were the next big band, Sudden Death Cult. They were like... You know, you two were coming to see them play because they were the new hot band. So um, I was a bit amazed he'd left. So, you know, it took me about one second to go, yeah, sure, I'm in. <laughs> and um, he, we, we actually spent that weekend, he crashed on. <laughs> this sounds weird. Me and him, because there was nowhere for him to sleep, so me and him slept in my bed on the mattress in Brixton and wrote, got sat down. He said, we better write some songs then if we're going to do a band. And that's how I sat down and came up with the first 
stuff on the first Death Cult EP, which was songs like Brothers Grimm, Christians. Might have been Horse Nation, I can't remember, but I somehow came up with these songs because he had he didn't have any of the fear that I had. You know, he, he wasn't aware that I didn't think I could write music. Mm-hmm. So he just said, well, what you got? And I, you know, I'd, I'd had one little riff for Brothers Grimm and it became the song Brothers Grimm from the very early Death Cult stuff. And that was, you know, and from that point on, you know, that's probably part two of the conversation, you know? Yeah, absolutely. This has been, as I said, off the top, I knew it was going to be amazing, but it succeeded all my possible expectations. Billy. I mean, I got, can, it's, it's a pleasure. Can I just say though, to anybody who's listening, I might have got some details wrong. It's the best <laughs> The best recollection I've got nearly 40 years later. Do you know what I mean? Like, yes. it, in general terms, it's all right. I don't think I've made any stuff up. I might <laughs> have got something chronologically wrong, but that's the that's basically what you're hearing is what I think happened. Well, just one quick fact check then that is that I can ask you. Right. Did you actually play in Slaughter the Dogs? I've heard you played in Slaughter the Dogs itself. No. Okay. No, okay. Never. Never. Well, then I'm, I can... It was, it was, no, definitely not. That was just about, no, I never did. It was just Studio Sweethearts with Howard, Phil Rowland, and Mike Rossi. We will correct the history um, books now, starting with this podcast. Yeah, please do. Please do. <laughs> never actually played in Slaughter the Dogs. Billy, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you, Billy, for coming on the show. And you heard right there, Billy will be back for a part two in the near future, when we talk about all the stuff after the the death cult stuff. So this is, this is great. I'm excited. I'm excited for this one. Woo! Speaking of excited, next week on the show, finally, after a couple hiccups, we will get to the Wicca phase Springs Eternal episode of the show. This is one of my favorite episodes ever. This is where we link uh, everything that's happening right now with the, the kind of blowing up goth boy click stuff to punk rock and of course a mutual love of pro wrestling gets in there too wicca is yeah this is is a great episode i'm not gonna blather on anymore but i'm gonna let you listen to it next week and you know what at the end of next week we'll have another episode yeah that's right i say fuck it i'm gonna be uh putting these things out less than on schedule so why not put out a lot of them so check out wicca phase on tuesday let's say tuesday and uh, uh then later on in the week you'll get another episode and check on the Wicca phase one, and I'll reveal which episode that's going to be, because I haven't decided yet. we got a lot of good ones coming up. Woo! All right, that's it, everyone. Go out there and make your own culture. Um, tell everyone you know that you love, that you love them when you see them, because you might not get another chance to do that. Please sign your organ donor cards, and, and that's it. Stay safe, and I will see you next week. Thank you for the understanding and support, and uh, yeah. <laughs>